Thanks, AJ. I'm gonna share in a moment, a COVID moment for me too, or a thing I learned during COVID. But before we get to that, I wanna share with you um, the thought for this morning, the helpful thought from the text that we turn to for guidance here, the Bible. This is from uh, a letter written by an early Christian who was a leader of some sort, who had voice of some kind, uh, two people in a young faith community trying to make their way with a radically new approach to doing faith. So this comes from the middle of this letter. It says, I, Paul, am the prisoner of the anointed one Jesus on behalf of you, the Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the caring for God's favor given to me for your sake, that the mystery was made known to me by a revelation, as I briefly wrote you before, regarding which you can, by reading of it, understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Now, one of the great tragedies, of course, is that we don't have that writing that came before. So we're just like, what was in it? I don't know. I really wish I did. <clears throat> But this mystery, which was not made known to people in past generations as it has now been revealed spiritually to his current priests and prophets, that the Gentiles are fellow recipients and fellows in a single body and fellow participants in the anointed one Jesus through the good news of which I became a minister by the gift of God's favor, which was given to me by the exertion of God's power. This favor was given to me, the least of all the holy ones, to sing to the Gentiles the good news, the unfathomable riches of the anointed, and to illuminate what it means to care for this mystery that from of old had been hidden in God, who has created all things, in order that through our togetherness, the expansive wisdom of God might be made known even to heavenly beings in keeping with God's purpose, launched back deep in time, which God has brought to fruition in the anointed one, Jesus our Lord, in whom through his faithfulness we have boldness and access to God and confidence. So, Jesus, we ask that you would help us to understand these words, how they're meaningful to us in our communal faith endeavor. Amen. So, uh, about a week and a half ago, my wife and I were standing here. You can bring up the little video clip. So this is us standing on the South Escarpment Trail of the Porcupine Mountain Wilderness State Park. It's 60,000 acres of virgin forest on the north coast of the Upper Peninsula, bordering Lake Superior. A beautiful place of expansive trees. My wife and I <laughs> discovered this during COVID. We took a COVID trip here because you can easily be alone in 60,000 acres of uncut forest, so safe during COVID. And we have since kept going back. So that was an expansive look over a forest, beautiful trees down below, colors just turning. The next day we were walking, we took a trail, a five mile trail through the woods 
with these trees all around, open territory underneath them, sunlight filtering down through the green leaves. And I had there a realization that probably, you know, was shared by most people walking the trail that day, which is, as these trees relate to the earth, I relate to the Bible. <laughs> so, so maybe not a common realization. But I had this sense as I was looking at the trees, their roots are sunk deep into the earth. They draw up nourishment. They draw up water. And so it gives them life. It also produces for them this rootedness stability. You know, but for a thing like derecho, these trees are pretty strong. You, move up, you walk up to them and push against them and you feel their solidness. And so I had that sense as I was walking along, this is how I have interacted with the Bible over time, with this text, with these stories. That in my life, I have sunk roots down deep into it. And I draw up from it thoughts and inspirations, stories, principles and ideas that have filled me. And that to whatever degree my life has stability as I navigate complexity, as I navigate all the stuff that buffets us, that threatens to topple us, to whatever degree I have stability, it's derived from this way of interacting with these stories interacting with these words, drawing up goodness into myself from them. And so that was helpful to me as a metaphor. It also immediately ruled out other metaphors that have governed how people across time have interacted with texts, with the Bible, for example. You know, <clears throat> like <laughs> the Bible is an overbearing authoritative schoolmaster that instructs you, that scrutinizes you, that checks up on you. It mapped pretty well onto what David talked about last week, having to do with fruitfulness, paying attention to fruitfulness instead of correctness. But one of the things, too, that I realized was in that endeavor for me, in the way this works, how it actually becomes helpful for me, one of the ways that occurs is not by going to the stories or to the text for information or for instruction or for correction or for approval, but going there looking for people living lives similar to mine, experiencing occurrences similar to what I'm going through, simply to find connection, compatriotness, but also maybe to find help. <laughs> you are experiencing, you experienced long ago what I'm experiencing now. How did you get through? What challenges did you face? And what in that turned out to be helpful for you to carry you forward? And so I came to this story, this account. So this is called the Paul's Letter to the Ephesians. And right away, there are a number of things that we have to make our way through to get to the goodness that's there. Right? I immediately detected, I felt in the letter, in what the person was writing, in their sentiments and sensibilities and what they were experiencing, kindredness to what my experience of living faith and connecting with Jesus has been like in recent years. But I was also aware there were challenges. This was a letter written long ago in a language that's not mine, so it had to be translated using sensibilities, even literary rules that are different from how communications are produced today. For example, this probably was not written by Paul. The letter was probably written by 
a trainee of Paul, someone who came after Paul. And so you and I looking today at somebody saying, hi, it's me, Paul, and then we find out that it's not, we would say, that's not fair, right? We would call foul on that. You're using the name for your own aims, right? To build yourself up. But people back in that day would have just thought, oh yeah, that's how we do it. That's how we write letters. That's how trainees, disciples, address themselves. And then it says to the Ephesians, but it probably wasn't. This region of the country, this city, this town called Ephesus is never actually mentioned in the letter. There's just a blank in the greeting. To the faithful in blank, and then it goes on. There's even a thought or a supposition that the letter actually did have a blank and you just filled it in with the name of your own community. Right? So we would write to the faithful in Coralville, and then the letter goes on. And that was just acceptable and fine. And so what I find, though, as I read this letter, as I encounter it, as I make my way past those things, is, oh my goodness, this person is contending with so much of my lived reality today. They have stumbled upon a truth that to them is both magnificent, is both just wonderful and awesome and life-giving and sort of overwhelming in its goodness, but that also presents incredible challenges. And their version of this wonderful, challenging truth is this, that the Gentiles are fellow recipients and fellows in a single body and fellow participants in the anointed one Jesus through the good news. Right, so the reality of the person writing this letter is that they and you know, Paul before them and the, inner, and the folks to whom they're writing, talking, communicating, they would have inhabited a practice of faith that to them was wonderful, that was filled with God, that was life-giving, that was amazing, that was glorious, but that also was constrained or confined to them that there was a particular group of people who inhabited this thing, who participated, and it, and it wasn't hard to tell who was in and who was not. There were clear lines of demarcation. And paying attention to that, paying attention to who was in and who was not, and how you were classified or qualified as being in was really important to getting the goodness that God had for you in this particular faith endeavor. But what has happened for this person writing the letter and for Paul and for the people to whom they're communicating is this realization that comes to them through what Jesus did that, oh my goodness, this was not just for us. This was not just for a select group of people, but God from of old has meant the goodness that we are experiencing to be for everyone. There's this explosive, expansive realization of the inclusivity of God that is just mind-boggling, right? There's this goodness that God intends to bring to humans, but instead of it being for a select few, and instead of getting access to it by particular aspects of identity or particular behaviors particular markers, it's just for everybody. And so I feel that as this 
author is writing the letter, I feel both just their joy at it, the, the exuberance, the surprisingness of it, which is awesome. You know, and you sort of think, well, that sounds great. Let's just go celebrate and have a party. Woohoo! We should all be happy because goodness is available to everybody. Isn't that just wonderful? <laughs> but of course, it's not the case, right? It's backed up immediately by, oh, that just turns everything upside down for me and makes me really nervous. Right? It turns everything upside down because the whole way I have practiced faith has been based on this concept of qualification and exclusivity. And so all the symbols, all the meaning making, all the principles have been built and organized around that, justifying that and explaining that. And it's also just not the case that people really like it that way. Right? That human beings like this all-togetherness, this inclusivity, this everybody gets the good stuff, right? It's captured by this author. This is just a little bit earlier in this letter that this person is writing. The author writes, In the anointed one Jesus, you who were once far away have come to be near through the blood of the anointed. For Christ himself is our peace, who has made the two into one, and shattered the interposing wall of partition, the enmity in his flesh, that in himself he might fashion the two into a single new human being, making peace, and might by the cross reconcile the two to God in one body, killing enmity in himself. (laughs) So... What the author is saying is, this is wonderful and awesome, but let's not fool ourselves. When individuals or groups who are formerly apart, who are formerly segregated, come together, it's not this swimmy joyful love fest, right? Segregation itself produces enmity, and then enmity feeds segregation. <laughs> it's amazing how, how magical this is amongst human beings, how just ready in us. I've been, watching, I don't, I've been watching a little bit of the golf tournament this weekend, the Ryder Cup, right? And so it's actually set close, it's a set in Michigan this year in the northern part of the Lower Peninsula, really beautiful. But so the Ryder Cup pits American golfers against European golfers. And so you have people watching, right? And it's golf, right? It's a bunch of people hitting a ball along the grass. This is not like world-shaking events or things going on. But you watch the Americans relate to the American golfers and the European golfers, and the Europeans relate to the American golfers and the European golfers, and they just instantly are pitted against each other. Cheering, you know, Americans cheering for Americans, booing Europeans, people who they have no meaningful contact with ever before or will ever again, about whom they know nothing. But just because of this chance association of geography, 
there is this pitting that is produced, and it's kind of lighthearted until it's not, right? Until lines are crossed that are venomous and which have to be corrected, you know, and people sent away because they're getting too caught up in the differences. And I think of our story too, our mapping onto what's going on here, our conversion from a practice of exclusion and qualification into an awareness of the expansive, wonderful, joyful inclusion of God, you know, has most powerfully been lived out or reflected in our faith community and our conversion from this practice of exclusion to including queerness, to centering queer persons in our community. And while we live in that and love it and deeply appreciate and embrace it and feel nothing but joy, we had to encounter the dividing walls and the reasons and the consequences of segregation and exclusion, which were far from wonderful within our very own selves. You know, and so I see that. I see what this writer is doing and saying and experiencing. And I hear, too, his perception of what's helpful in Jesus. It's a remarkable thing that he says that I desperately want to understand better. That Jesus doesn't come along just as sort of a mediator. As someone who sits people down across the table and says, hey, what are you upset about? Hey, what are you upset about? Let's see if we can come up with a compromise. That God understands how deeply this propensity towards division goes amongst you and I. And so that Jesus himself, as Jesus lives his life and dies his death and comes back to life, Jesus doesn't just smooth things over. He, in some way, at least according to this person, becomes the enmity. He inhabits it. He takes it into himself. And when he is killed, the enmity is killed. (laughs) And I want to understand that. Because I know it's not magic, right? I know that when Jesus came forth from the grave, it's not like you and I all woke up and said, Well, what was that trouble? I just like everybody now. (laughs) You know, But there's something there to what Jesus did that goes beyond you and I just choosing to try to be better, but that gets to the heart of why we behave this way and how it can be undone. (laughs) And I love, too, as, as I read this, I love the concept of mystery that it embraces. My wife and I as a part of our going-to-bed practice, often watch British murder mysteries, <laughs> which just raises a whole lot of questions about the British, right? These seemingly kind of staid, placid, really nice folks, but they're just killing everybody left and right. And especially in the small coastal towns, I keep expecting them to just turn out to be abandoned now because nobody is alive there anymore. <clears throat> Right? But one of the plot devices is that somebody dies and there's only six people who could have done it and you don't know until the big reveal at the end. And when the big reveal happens, it all becomes clear. All the clues manifest. Right, 
<laughs> and so you understand, you can follow the trail and you can work your way back into deep time. And so there's this, you know, the author saying, oh, God has revealed this mystery that's been kept hidden from us for ages. I think the only reason the mystery of God's goodness, of expansive, wonderful, awesome inclusivity has been a mystery is that we can't see it from within ourselves. We can't imagine it. We can't conceive of it. We are so caught up in segregation and enmity and how we work as human beings, you know, but once we see it, the author says, oh, the clues have been there all along. This was not mysterious to God. This has been God's intention. And so when you look back at the writings and at the texts, and this is what you see Paul doing in his letters. This is what you see this writer doing, looking back and thinking, oh, look it, there was a clue. God said this all along. This was God's intention. This was how God felt about human beings. It's only been mysterious to us that this is how things are supposed to work. And so I think about that for us as a faith community. We have had a taste of this way of being. We have experienced some degree of conversion from a practice of exclusion, of enmity, of being at odds, into something closer to this surprising, only to us, expansive welcome and inclusion of God. But it's only meant to be a type. It's a representation. The people experienced it back then knew that. Right, Paul writes elsewhere, there is now neither Jew nor Greek, then he goes on, male nor female, slave nor free. And I don't think in any way that that list is meant to be final, complete. For us, there is both queer and straight, there is neither queer nor straight. And we are just on the front end of living out, finding out what that means for us. What is the fruitfulness that will come from welcoming the expansive inclusivity of God? And I think that it is for this faith community meant to be a part of who we are, what we do, how we go forward. There's still all sorts of ways where I find within myself this propensity to exclusion, to resisting welcome my fear of the other, a sense of threat, right? I will never have attained some finality with this. I don't know what comes next for you, for me, you know, how we live this out, but I think it's meant to be an ethic of this place, something we aspire to, something we lean into, perceive, keep going after again and again and again, more and more deeply. And so in closing, I want to bring you into a form of helpfulness that this author brought to his listeners. It's just, it's a prayer. <laughs> There's the awareness, I think, on the part of this author that to really do this right, to go all in, to be deep, we need or we would benefit from receiving uh, power from God. Right? That it actually takes something beyond intention, good intentions, or even awareness to really make this happen. So I want to read a prayer that the writer wrote, say a little bit about it, read it again, it's pretty brief, and then we'll just sit in it for a minute. You can see if anything comes to you, if God stirs something in you, brings perception. So here's the prayer. I bend my knees to God, from whom every family and human group in heaven and on earth derives its identity, 
asking that by the riches of God's glory, God might grant you to be made mighty with power in your inner being by the Spirit, that Christ the anointed might dwell in your hearts by faithfulness, having been rooted and grounded, there's my forest, in love, so that you might have the strength to grasp along with all the holy ones what breadth and length and height and depth is, and to know the love of Christ that exceeds knowing so that you might be filled to all the fullness of God. Right? So I hear this yearning, this awareness of the power of God available, the fullness that can come to you and me, the joyfulness of it. Let me read it again, and then we'll sit for a moment. God, make this real to us as a faith community here, to live into this ethic, to be nourished by these people from of old um, who came into the same awareness that we are coming into and who needed just as much help as we do. I bend my knees to God from whom every family and human group in heaven and on earth derives its identity, asking that by the riches of God's glory, God might grant you to be made mighty with power in your inner being by the Spirit, that Christ the anointed might dwell in your hearts by faithfulness, having been rooted and grounded in love, so that you might have the strength to grasp along with all the holy ones what breadth and length and height and depth is and to know the love of the Christ that exceeds knowing so that you might be filled to all the fullness of God. So the band can come as we prepare to transition to worship. Um, as we move to communion, I invite you to take this sense of God with you into it. Communion is something where we all together engage in a practice of connecting with Jesus. His welcome extended to us all, a symbol of our unity, our togetherness, our together having experienced this expansive, inclusive welcome of God. So if you desire to connect with Jesus in this particular way, we have stations at the front and the back. I think the front are the individual packets for communion and the back there's bread and juice. Um, come as you feel ready and then we'll together enter into musical worship.